0: Hi, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert.
1: And we're the Film Flamers.
0: It's November and just in time for the 25th anniversary of Interview with the Vampire. So we thought we would discuss this movie now. It's been on our list to talk about since the inception of this podcast. We were just waiting for the right moment to talk about it.
1: Well, actually, it's been on our schedule for a year, and we just found out this (laughs) month that it was the 25th anniversary. That's right. When we saw that everyone else was covering it, we're like, why is everyone copying us again? And then... I guess we found out (laughs) that we were accidentally, uh, we accidentally put it on the 25th anniversary. So, you know what? Great. And that makes me feel happy that we're always lucking into these things, right?
0: But it also makes me feel really old. 25 years (laughs) since Interview with the Vampire was released? That's ridiculous. I was a child, I was a teenager. Uh, You weren't a child. Sir? I was 12. Oh, I was that really a... T- you were a tween.
1: Yeah, okay. Preteen.
0: So, this movie was released when? 1994 in November, yeah. so I was 15 years old. That's squarely a teenager, right? Yeah, Inzantine. Yeah. So, grass on the lawn, all that. I mean, I saw it in the theater and <laughs> grass on the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 fuck me so um <clears throat> interview with the vampire is a 1994 american gothic romance horror film directed by neil jordan and based on the 1976 novel by anne rice the narrative is told through extended flashbacks and is framed by the vampire louis de Lac telling his story to an aspiring san francisco journalist is he aspiring
1: yeah at least in the novel he is and it didn't say in the book or sorry it didn't say in the movie but he is in the okay in fact in the novel he's just called the boy and in the movie uh he's called daniel because in later novels he's actually called daniel oh malloy yep
0: and i guess we'll get into all of that stuff because chris is a big fan of anne rice Correct.
1: Yeah, I've uh, read every single novel in her Vampire Chronicles, um, including like the standalone side novels like Pandora and things like that. So I'm I'm fairly uh, I'm I'm pretty much an expert, as close as an expert as you can be with these things, I guess, or a fanboy (laughs) would be the more crass way of saying it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I really got into the novels and everything kind of in high school. And then I've been reading them ever since, including the one that just came out this year. I read a few books by her son, uh, Christopher Rice. It was also very good, you know, but I think I got into it mainly because of this movie. I watched it kind of during my formative years and there was nothing like it.
0: See, I read the book a couple years before the movie came out. I think it was like toward the end of my middle school experience when I was just hungry for whatever kind of horror literature I could get my hands on. And I used to go buy these really cheap paperbacks and it was just one that I had picked up. And I read and I liked the book quite a bit and I knew that there were others in a series. I just, I never read the rest of them. You know, and uh, yeah. when the movie came out, I liked the movie quite a bit and just never revisited anything. I did read some of Anne Rice's erotica, though. You know, so,
1: yeah, I, I've never read her uh, erotica, which she does under a different name. Uh, mm-hmm. I've forgotten the name. Uh, it's like the Sleeping Beauty series, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she also does a, a witch series, Mayfair Witches. Mm-hmm.
0: Um
1: like Lasher and a couple others. I have not read those, but there's been some crossovers with The Vampire Chronicles, at least one or two books. And those have been interesting with the combined mythology. But um, no, uh, actually, Interview the Vampire is far from my favorite novel in that series. At least four or five others are my favorites before Interview the Vampire. So it's a really great series. It's obviously uh, has a, you know, a following and a cult following all at the same time. Multiple films have been made, not just this one. Also, Queen of the Damned, which we don't talk about. <laughs> uh, I think the only people that really hate that film are the people that have read the book, but you know,
0: yeah, because I know there's a lot of people who really, really enjoy that movie. You know, and I haven't seen it in a very long time because it's
1: honestly one of the best books in this series, easily better than Interview of the Vampire. It's it's a very it's a huge sweeping uh, tale, and it's um, there's a lot of like ancient uh, flashbacks and stuff in there, which they just didn't really do. Uh, the history part of it and Queen of the Damned they just made it into like this action rock you know thing and uh, for me like I I cannot distance myself from the book when I watch Queen of the Damned but anyway we are not here to discuss Queen of the Damned and that abortion of a film (laughs) we are here to talk about Interview with the Vampire I want you to see we get started
2: so you want me to tell you the story of my life I'll tell you my story I'll tell you all of it. I'm flesh and blood, but not human. I haven't been human for 200 years. From the novel by Anne Rice. From Neil Jordan, the director of The Crying Game. I've come to answer your prayers. Life has no meaning anymore, does it? His name is Lestat. But what if I could give it back to you, pluck out the pain, and give you another life, one you could never imagine? I can see you lying on a bed of satin. He chose one man. He gave him infinite power, eternal life, and a daughter who would be forever young. This is the only real evil left. And then he took the light of day. You're a vampire. You never knew what life was until it ran out in a red gush over your lips. I can't stand this any longer. You never- is what we are didn't if God kills indiscriminately and so shall we you like dying you condemn me to hell monster Kirsten Dunst, and Christian Slater. Interview with the Vampire.
1: In modern-day San Francisco... Journalist Daniel Malloy, played by Christian Slater, interviews Louis de, Point de Lac, played by Brad Pitt, who claims to be a vampire wanting to tell his story. Louis begins by describing his human life as a wealthy plantation owner in late 18th century Louisiana. He's despondent and suicidal following the death of his wife and unborn child. After one night of self-destructive behavior, his beauty and melancholic nihilism attracts the attention of vampire Lestat de Lioncourt, played by Tom Cruise, who attacks Louis as he's drunkenly shambling around the New Orleans waterfront. Lestat gives Louis the choice that he never had, to die or to become a vampire. Louis chooses the latter, but after his turning, quickly regrets his decision. While Lestat revels in the hunt and the killing of humans, Louis holds on to humanity and resists killing, choosing to live off of animals rather than lose more of his humanity. Hungry and dissatisfied from a diet solely of animals, Louis wanders the streets of New Orleans during a plague outbreak and stumbles across a young girl in a home with her mother who has died of the plague. Through desperation and sympathy, Louis feeds on the girl and afterwards assumes her to be dead. The stat, however, has witnessed the event, and in order to entice Louis to stay with him, turns the girl, Claudia, played by Kirsten Dunst, into a vampire, and together they raise her as a daughter. Louis has great love for Claudia, but Lestat treats her more as a pupil, training her to become a merciless killer. As 30 years pass, Claudia matures mentally, but is forever trapped in the body of a little girl, and she's treated as such by Lestat. Claudia reveals her desire to be a grown woman after the corpse of the beautiful Creole woman is found in her bed, which is against the rules of the household. In a rage, she explains that she wants to be the woman, but Lestat cruelly reminds her that she'll never be like her. Furious, Claudia tells Louis that they should leave Lestat, but Louis explains that he'll never willingly let them go. In an attempt to make amends, Claudia brings Lestat a pair of young twin boys, whom she has gotten drunk on brandywine. Accepting the peace offering, Lestat drinks from the boys, but immediately realizes that something is wrong. Claudia explains that the boys are dead, and she has killed them by overdose, knowing that vampires cannot drink the blood of the dead. While his body reacts to the bad blood, Claudia slits his throat. Though shocked and appalled, Louis helps Claudia dump Lestat's body in the nearby swamp. The two begin to lead a happy, Lestat-free life, and plan a voyage to Europe. But on the night they are to depart, a grotesque stat shows up in their home, explaining that he fed off the putrid blood of the swamp creatures to stay alive and regain a measure of his strength. He attacks them, but in a panic, Louis sets him on fire with a lantern. In the ensuing blaze, Claudia and Louis escape to their ship and leave for Europe. After traveling across the world and finding no trace of other vampires, Louis and Claudia settle harmoniously in Paris. Louis, by chance, encounters Vampire Santiago, played by Stephen Rea, and Armand, played by Antonio Banderas. Armand invites Louis and Claudia to Theater des Vampires, a theater owned and operated by a coven of vampires. Here, the vampire stage horror plays for humans. While leaving the theater, Santiago reads Louis's mind and suspects him of killing Lestat. The killing of another vampire is a high crime, Armand warns Louis to send Claudia away for her safety, and he attempts to seduce Louis to remain with him to learn more about what it means to be a vampire. Sensing Louis's temptation, Claudia later demands that Louis turn a woman, Madeline, into a vampire to be her protector and companion in his stead. Louis resists, as this would consume the last bit of humanity he had been clinging on to. He eventually complies, but immediately after her turning, the Parisian coven abduct all three to punish them for Lassat's death. Louis is locked in a metal coffin and hidden behind a hastily built brick wall to suffer for eternity, while Claudia and Madeline are trapped at the bottom of a well with an open roof to await the inevitable sunrise. As the sun rises over Paris, Claudia and Madeline clutch each other as the rays of the sun slowly creep towards them. They are soon completely enveloped by the deadly light and burned to ashes while holding each other in utter terror. The next day, Armand frees Louis from his tomb, and, upon seeing Claudia and Madeline's huddled remains, becomes overcome with grief, and he silently avows revenge on the coven. Louis arrives at the theater just before dawn and sets it ablaze from the inside whilst the vampires slumber. While the vampires die burning, Louis battles with Santiago, slicing him in twain with a scythe. Upon his escape, Armand arrives just in time to rescue Louis in his carriage. Once again, Armand offers Louis a place by his side, but he refuses and leaves for good, knowing that Armand could have saved Claudia. As the decades pass, Louis roams the world dejectedly and alone, and eventually returns to New Orleans. One night, as he walks the streets of the old French Quarter, he catches the scent of ancient death. And eventually comes across a pitiful Lestat who is living as a recluse in an abandoned mansion, living off of rats as Louis once did. Lestat asks him if they can become a family again, but Louis gently rejects him and leaves. As the interview ends, Molloy offers to become his vampire companion, but Louis is outraged by this. Malloy has not understood the true nature of his tale of the suffering and the grief. Louis violently frightens Malloy into changing his mind, and Malloy flees to his car outside. While driving across the Golden Gate Bridge, Lestat suddenly appears in the back seat, attacks and feeds on Malloy, and takes the wheel of a car. Revived by Malloy's blood, Lestat offers the dying Malloy the choice that he never had. (laughs) Theme.
0: There's a lot going on in this movie, Jesus. I mean, there is.
1: And it's really paced well.
0: That's a pretty concise synopsis for
1: what, like a a two hour movie? And And we left a lot out. There's a lot of nuance. There's a shit ton of visual storytelling and nuance in this movie.
0: Agreed. So uh, Interview with the Vampire was released on November the 11th, 1994, which we said earlier we are celebrating the 25th anniversary of. And it was a definite box office success. Uh, opening weekend, box office brought in $36.4 million, making it the number one movie that weekend. In later weeks, it struggled against Star Trek Generations and the Santa Claus, but managed to bring in $105 million domestically with a total global gross of $224 million against a $60 million budget.
1: Yeah, it definitely made its money, and and actually today, it's still considered... Uh, one of the highest-grossing vampire movies of all time. I think it's number five behind all the Twilight movies.
0: <laughs> I mean, and really, though, I, there was no way this movie was not going to make any money. You know, I'm sure we'll get into that a little later on, but with, with the cast that it had, I think that it was destined to make money,
1: regardless of when it was released
0: or or anything like that. You
1: know, I'm thinking about it, and I, I just don't know. Like, any other time or situation or other movie you know, that it was released with or something, it could have utterly failed given how strange it is for the time and, you know, and how different it is. Right. Um, it's really interesting to me, especially since it was released after Halloween and they didn't really capitalize on that crowd. And Well,
0: yeah, and we're having a similar conversation these days because, I mean, we talked about uh, Dr. Sleep in our last hot take. And a lot of people are saying that it didn't make the kind of money that it should have because it was released after Halloween. Yeah, But let's also remember, you know, we talked about Creepshow last month and it was released after Halloween and made a, a shit ton of money, right? Yeah. So, I mean... And maybe just like a striking while the iron is hot kind of deal. And I think with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt attached to a high budget movie with a lot of advertising, I mean, this movie was was destined to make money.
1: Well, there was a lot of news around it too, right? Both positive and negative. It had been a popular book. And a lot of people in Hollywood wanted to make it into a movie. So it was kind of in development hell for a long, long time. And it was supposed to kick off, you know, a series. The subtitle of the film is uh, The Vampire Chronicles. Right. That's part of the title, should be. Uh, the interview with, interview with the Vampire, The, the Vampire Chronicles, right? What's also interesting is like Anne Rice was very vocal about the casting. Uh, the cast itself was gigantic. So that's a big positive. Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Antonio Banderas, Devin Rea, as well as it was supposed to be River Phoenix. But before he could uh, star as the interviewer, uh, he died tragically. right? And so uh, Christian Slater took over. And so that was part of kind of the dialogue about this movie. And so I think there's just generated a lot of interest for a lot of different reasons. And then I'm guessing there was some word of mouth about how good it was and how unique it was. So despite it having kind of mixed reviews, which we'll talk about next.
0: Yeah, so Interview the Vampire had mixed reviews, uh, mixed to positive, actually, and currently has a 62% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 52 reviews. I mean, 62%, how do you feel about that? I feel like I feel like it should be higher, really? I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, I was surprised when I read that number. Technically.
1: 62% yeah,
0: I think, seems pretty low. I
1: think that if they were to like repoll critics, it'd be a hell of a lot higher. Today, yeah, I agree. Yeah. It holds an audience score of 86%, and the site's consensus reads... Despite lacking some of the book's subtler shadings and suffering from some clumsy casting, Interview with the Vampire benefits from Neil Jordan's atmospheric direction and a surfeit of gothic thrills.
0: Um, it got some positive reviews from the New York Times' Elvis Mitchell and Roger Ebert, and Time Magazine and the Washington Post were more negative. I was looking at different uh, views of the movie, and... This I came across this anecdote of Oprah Winfrey seeing like a an earlier showing, and she left the movie like really early on, like ten minutes on, because she said there was way way too much gore and violence. And I I don't get that either.
1: Do you think this movie's super gory? Not in the first ten minutes and no, besides I that mean, not really no
0: no i don't think so at all uh she even considered canceling an interview with tom cruise on her show because of her experience with the movie and she had a quote that said um i believe there are forces of light and darkness in the world and i don't want to be a contributor to the forces of darkness
1: oh, give me a break watch the fucking movie
0: and yet later on she let tom
1: cruise jump up and down on her couch so i mean she's a contributor to those, for- <laughs> those forces of darkness no matter what yeah it was nominated for two Oscars in art direction and original score, uh, but lost to *The Madness of King George* and *The Lion King*, respectively. That was a that was a tough year because everyone just loved the Lion King score, and it's still, of course, famous today. Yeah. But um, I have to say that *Interview with the Vampire* by uh, Elliot Goldenthal's score is. One of my favorites of all time.
0: Yeah, it's one of the very few film scores that I had purchased when I was younger. Like I had this on CD. It's
1: really one yeah. of the scores that got me interested in film scores to begin with. And it's also one of the first uh, soundtracks that I got. I just, I remember the music because we weren't allowed to see the film. The first time my parents watched it was at home on Laserdisc. And <laughs> they had rented it on wow. Laserdisc. <laughs> and I remember hearing the score and just falling in love with it before I ever saw any kind of image uh, from the movie, and uh, finally ended up watching it not long after that. They finally let me because I just begged and begged, and I just fell in love with the movie just from then on out. So uh, it was also nominated for two Golden Globes in the original score and Best Supporting Actress categories. It won two BAFTAs for cinematography and production design, and it was nominated for Best Makeup and Costume Design.
0: Uh, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt won a Razzie Award for Worst On Screen <laughs> Couple. <laughs> <laughs> which was a tie that year. They tied with Sylvester Stallone and Sharon Stone for The Specialist.
1: Homophobes. So,
0: <laughs> really? I know. that's just, <laughs> God, they're just before their time, is all it is. But, um, I mean, I think that the movie obviously was well-received because it made a lot of money, and despite, you know, maybe some negative critical aspects to it, I think that this movie has gone on to, you know... Gain more audiences, and I, yeah, I think that the audience score on Rotten tomato sort
1: of like shows that. Yeah, and obviously people are still talking about the movie. I mean, think Kirsten Dunst, uh, you know, still gets people t- stopping her on the street and telling her things about, you know, Interview the Vampire and how they loved her performance and you know how it was such a great movie and and everything. So she's still getting comments about that, and I'm, I'm sure the other actors do too. There's just something different about this this movie. I mean, it doesn't do anything in particular that different or unique. It's the package, right? It's the it's everything kind of came together to, f- you know, form this atmosphere that is so incredibly singular and unique. The the music and the direction and the look, the production design, the costumes, the makeup everything is very focused on one particular kind of feeling. And there's almost nothing quite like it.
0: Yeah, because it really is, I mean, like, a combination of everything that was good in movies in 1994. I mean, good or bad, depending on who you talk to, right? So we have, like, Tom Cruise, who at the time was at the, you know, height of his popularity. And we have Brad Pitt, who was sort of starting his. And then we have Neil Jordan, who had just recently um, either... Won, I, I think he won a Best Screenplay Award for The Crying Game. It was also nominated for Best Director for that particular movie back in 1992. And I think he was a really sought-after director at the time. And like you had said before, this movie sort of like... periled in, like, purgatory for a long time. Mm -hmm. So the novel was released in 1976. We didn't get a movie until 1994. It's almost 20 years later. And you would think, with all the copies sold of this particular book, a movie would have come out before that. But, I mean, I don't know what troubles it had and all of its developmental hell, but... 20 years is a long time to like, you know, yeah. anguish in that like film purgatory area. And she
1: had already written I think at least two or three of the of the follow-up books, you know. One of them Oh, by yeah, the One of them being the prequel, The Vampire Lestat. Oh, it's a prequel? Yeah, for the most part. Well, no. Yes, or no. <laughs> it takes place it tells <laughs> it tells us that story which is obviously older than louis right most of it takes place in paris really you know and it shows yeah how Lestat met armand uh when he was a freshly made vampire and that whole experience and kind of the formation of the theater of the vampires and what they were before the theater of the vampires which was a cult of satan
0: what, what?
1: <laughs> the church of satan yep yeah. There's all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Okay, maybe I should read these books. <laughs> no, it's incredibly good. It's really really interesting and and you learn about uh Lestat's maker, which is really interesting. So, uh his name was Magnus. Magnus? Yeah. It's pretty gay. <laughs> and so he was.
0: <laughs> and I mean, I think that's a really good like leading off point into one of the things that I really appreciate about Interview with the Vampire, right? I mean, this movie is really, really fucking gay. <laughs> I mean, I mean, for a movie made in 1994, I think that it's maybe a little ahead of its time in some of its depictions of a homosexual relationship and family.
1: Yeah, and uh, Anne Rice has always been really progressive uh, when it comes to LGBT issues. Um, obviously before her son was born and long before he came out as a as a gay himself you know and of course his books are basically you know you know gay as christmas themselves
0: i know my husband loves them
1: yeah but um and some good horror in there too but uh she was basically saying that vampires transcend sexuality like they're not they're not looking to like have sex with people, obviously they're looking to like consume people or even have like eternal kind of relationships and, and stuff like that. And thus are attracted quote unquote to any sex. However, even apart from that mythology, there are many examples of both casual and committed same sex relationships between both vampires and humans in any combination in, uh, in the books. And this one in particular, I think, I don't know that I really picked up on it a lot
0: back when I was a 15 year old, you know, when I saw this in the movies and that was, you know, not out of the closet at 15. I didn't come out until I was like 17 or 18. But uh, I think that some of the really heavy handed Homosexuality in this movie was completely lost on me the first time that I watched it.
1: Well, it's subtle enough cuz a lot of people were worried about it including Anne Rice herself to the point where she was convinced at one point to write a version where Louie was a woman. And they were what? looking at the yeah, they were looking at Share to play <laughs> <laughs> yeah so oh i'm glad they didn't do that although kind of morbidly curious to see it i um, mean
0: every drag queen in the world would have just loved this
1: movie then for that. there was gay subtext in the novel that was omitted um lestat expects louis to sleep with him and you know in the same coffin at first right lestat louis and later claudia are a family right so and also in the novel, Anne Rice mentions that um she mentions like stone walls a lot in the novel. Oh. Which could be an oblique reference to the gay rights movement at the time, to- at the same kind of, of obviously the same name and uh about what at that point, seventy-six, uh seven years earlier. Yeah. Or so?
0: Well maybe about ten years earlier or so. Ten yeah. years. Yeah. Um so Chris and I watched this movie together and it had been the first time that I watched it in about maybe 15 years oh, or wow. so. And I was sort of blown away by just how obvious the homosexual like storylines were. And I was drawing all these like, you know, comparisons to my own life about, you know, meeting someone and forming a relationship. And, you know, they they sort of adopt this daughter and things like that. And I was just sort of struck as a gay adult about how much there was in this movie that I had not noticed before. It took me all these years of living out of the closet and not watching this movie to come back and realize just how ahead of its time it really is. Yeah. And there's just so much going on in this movie for gay people to, to latch onto and love. And I'd like to think that they were, you know, gay adults Watching this movie at the time in 1994 and just like really applauding it and saying like, you know, this is something that we've been wanting to see on screen for a long time because we do have, you know, gay characters for the most part. And I mean, there's just nothing, nothing bad is happening to them outside of their vampire lives. Things are things Bad things aren't happening to them because they're gay. Yeah. You know what I mean? And we see that all the time in horror movies. We've talked about them before on this podcast. But in this particular movie, these gay people are
1: just gay. Yeah. Uh, even on their their first hunt together, right? Lestat and Louis takes them to a uh, a party, right? And uh, tries to get them to read their minds or whatever. And I think I actually brought this up on our Patreon, like one of our scene um Are seeing things. And uh, so Lestat actually takes a, um, you know, like a young, young guy out because he was the murderer of this other woman's husband and they're like the Mm -hmm. secret lovers together. And he's obviously gay. You know, and, you know, Lestat's like touching his face and kind of takes him out to a tree and like caressing him a little bit, (laughs) you know, he's going to kill him or whatever. But that's how they get away with it, you know, of showing this stuff and kind of making it ambiguous. Of course, Louis takes the woman who contracted the killing and, um, you know, with with all of her poodles and ends up killing the poodles and feeding on the poodles instead of the woman. Gay as Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for real. (laughs) Even just the way
0: that the actors portrayed their characters in this movie, I think that they were sort of in on it, right? And they they knew what they were doing. Tom Cruise delivers his lines in just such a a perfect kind of like catty, bitchy, queer way that, I mean, it's just, I mean... It's almost too real. Yeah, one would say... (laughs) he's done this before maybe <laughs> but the way he's always like oh louis and things like that i'm just like please queen come
1: on <laughs> there's some good clapbacks in it too but anyway uh it's not about you know being gay um necessarily uh that's one thing i really like about Anne rice is that it's kind of incidentally that you get those lessons just because it's there that's why yeah. inclusion is so important and showing it just so casual and matter of fact is definitely ahead of its time, even if it was ambiguous, you know, and um, I applaud, you know, Neil Jordan, and I applaud the studio for going through with this. And, you know, This is the closest, the most gay this film was ever going to be in 1994, I can definitely assure you.
0: Yeah, I think that they probably like their toe was right on that line, you know. Yeah, if they had crossed it just a bit, I mean, maybe audiences in 1994 weren't quite ready for that sort of thing. If they had just gone way too, you know, above and beyond what they did, but I think it was just the right amount
1: of gay to 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 make it and make it work. It also made it more mysterious and intriguing, I think, to general audiences. You know, just just kept them guessing. But what Anne Rice has always been adamant about about these stories the vampire chronicles is that at its root it's about the nature of good and evil right they're not a statement on the subject but rather a question does good and evil exist as concepts is there only gray i mean there's that quote from lestat straight up from the movie he says evil is a point of view god kills indiscriminately and so shall we for no creatures under god are as we are none so like him as ourselves that's pretty deep so I mean that's you know word for word from the movie and he said it very eloquently. Um there's so many good moments uh and quotes and uh more cerebral things going on in this movie than you would think a vampire movie would have. Right? If you're if you're talking about stereotypes.
0: Well not I and mean, I completely agree. I think that a lot of times vampire movies are just about <clears throat> you know the kill and the change and then the killing of the vampire, yeah. right? And so this movie really isn't about that. There's there's no one hunting these vampires down, you know. They they don't really have an enemy outside of themselves or, you know, maybe other vampires, right? And that's a really interesting concept for a vampire movie. I think it it really takes the idea of being a vampire and brings it inside the character, right? So the character has to really focus on what it means to be who they are, what they are, and how they're going to survive or move forward,
1: and still remember what it means to be a human being. Exactly. And living forever and turning and becoming something else doesn't mean that you're escaping the tragedies that you lived in your life right no if anything it makes it, you're gonna have you know, more compounds it you know right. and so that's part of the story she wrote the book as a kind of catharsis after losing her youngest child as a, as a toddler from leukemia the nature of the disease of course inspired her to write about vampirism because it's a you know blood cancer essentially right and the tragedy of the child vampire claudia And she realized later that she had poured all of her feelings of grief and melancholy and nihilism um, into the character of Louis. And it could be argued that Lestat was a form of willful blind acceptance that she rejected in her misery, the ability to move forward. in subsequent books, kind of like an id in a way, in subsequent books, uh, Lestat is actually the main character and Louis doesn't find emotional peace until much later in the series. Uh, One might tie this transition uh, to the birth of her second child, Christopher Rice, who was born just two years after Interview with a Vampire was published.
0: That's really interesting. And I I like knowing like an author's headspace when they write a book, you know, because you sort of get an idea of why they're doing what they're doing. I think it's important to know like the history of authors, right? For this very reason. However, I steadfastly agree that whenever you write something you sort of like put it out into the world, right? Yeah. I've said it before on this podcast, right? But um, in this particular instance, I think it's very interesting to to find correlations between those two things. And since I haven't read a lot of these books and I don't know a whole lot about Anne Rice herself, I mean, I, I think that's that's fascinating.
1: I think some of the best works of art are, are just working yourself through tragedy. I mean, like Adele's big album and, you know, yes. uh, Alanis Morissette, you know? Um, yeah this book, just so many other examples out there of people, artists working through their pain and using their work as catharsis. And, and it just hits home for people, they can feel it, right? Because like, how poignant must that be, you know, as a muse, however dark it is to to say that it's like, it's when you have a child that's just starting to be able to say, you know, mommy and, and pull words together. And you've got plans, and you see the personality, and then boom, dead. Yeah, that's crazy. Actually watching the child die of leukemia. How horrible is that? You know, and and being raised um, uh, a Catholic, you know, she has all those questions about good and evil and the meaning of life and everything else. And so she kind of poured all of that into this thing, uh, this this novel. And so we see kind of a lot of that on the screen uh, translated with just that feeling in the atmosphere, right?
0: Yeah, and the atmosphere in this movie is top-notch right i think that neil jordan really really created a wonderful space for these characters to live in and i mean this movie spans the the centuries right and it just yeah it's just so amazingly pretty to look at to me I like the costumes are fantastic the sets are fantastic i just everything is working for this movie from a visual standpoint and
1: i i mean it really just draws you into it what did you think about the cast? Because one of the things that the Rotten Tomatoes thing said, obviously it was enough of an aggregate to say that there was some sloppy casting. And I don't know if I agree with that. I think it's sloppy if you think about how some of the characters are described in the book. Uh, Armand is supposed to be, you know, like a prepubescent Russian child with like strawberry blonde curly hair, cherubic, right? And really? And he's played by Antonio Banderas. Yeah, okay. Right? So it's a little bit interesting. Also, Claudia is supposed to be five years old, not 11 or 10, whatever uh, Kirsten Dunst was. But um, I thought the cast was just fine, even with knowing how they're supposed to look. I mean, it's been a long time since I've read this book, so I forget a lot of like descriptions, right? So
0: I think a lot, a lot of my memory from Interview the Vampire comes from the movie and not the novel, I, I think I remember sort of a backlash at the time this movie was made about some of the casting. I think like a lot of people didn't want Tom Cruise
1: to play Lestat. Is that mainly Anne Rice? Anne Rice was adamant and public against the uh, casting of Tom Cruise and said multiple things in interviews uh, during the making of it and before in the anticipation of the film, and she said she was. Quote, stunned by the casting of Cruz, who is no more My Vampire Lestat than Edward G. Robinson is Rhett Butler. <laughs> <laughs> but after seeing the movie, she took out two full page ads in Variety, singing his praises and calling the movie a masterpiece.
0: And i mean tom cruise has his naysayers you know
1: and she she publicly or she called him uh to uh personally apologize
0: good and i because i think that this is one of his better
1: roles i think he did a, a really good job in this movie oh it's completely unique for him it's it's very standalone in his career it's so different It's so outside
0: of his wheelhouse right especially today he would never make this movie today it would never happen because the church wouldn't let him he's so (laughs) he's so squarely an action star now it's kind of like all that he does so i mean like he was in the a horror-esque movie recently, right? He was in that Mummy movie. Yeah. And even that was more of an action movie than a horror film. Like, he just doesn't, he doesn't make movies like this anymore.
1: No, it's because he loves to do action. He is obsessed with it. He wants to do all of the most amazing stunts. Uh, I think one of the most recent uh, mission of is he was jumping from roof to roof and off the Dubai tower and different things in different movies. And those are all things that he thought about wanting to do for years. And so half of these movies are just his ideas that he really wants to do. And they kind of make a movie around some it. fucking Napoleon <laughs> complexes. You know? And of is, course really. he breaks his, he, he does the stunts and he last one, he broke his uh, foot and you can see it and they kept it in the movie. And uh, he's, like, proud of it. So, you know what? More power to him. He's willing to put his, you know, money and his health where his mouth is. So, (laughs) you know, one of these days, you know, he's going to fall to his death or something, you know, and that'll be his legacy. I
0: don't really remember having a problem with Tom Cruise when I was younger. I mean, I...
1: Absolutely not. No, I mean,
0: I I think about movies like All the Right Moves and things like that, where he's 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 a decent actor. I was much more of
1: a nerd, so I was watching like Legend.
0: <laughs> oh, oh my God, yes, Legend is amazing. You know, and I mean, he's he's a good actor, and I just I think he did a really good job in this movie. I mean, and I don't I don't want to keep yeah. harping back on these like like you know gay subtexts or things like that, but I think that he really embodied that kind of character and he he just he he did it seamlessly both yeah in dialogue and action and just he just did a good job in this movie and i mean i i do
1: love brad pitt we've, we've talked about brad pitt before in seven he but he complains that he didn't have much to do in this movie but just be a straight-faced sad person and, and he's right he's right but he did a damn good job doing yeah it.
0: he did i mean he was pretty standing there being sad you know, but and I mean, I I think that Brad Pitt brought a lot of like heart and and quiet and family to this kind of movie. I think that he yeah he really was just the opposite kind of vampire from what Tom Cruise
1: brought, and that's the whole point, right? He's definitely the closest thing to the audience we have, yes. right? Because he's reacting to everything, kind of. Like we would, right? Even Claudia is much more of a grounded vampire than he is, right? right? He's like our, our He's, yeah.
0: um empathetic ground,
1: right, for the movie. Yeah, yeah. In the novels, like later on it kind of explains why he is so human more so than other vampires. It's because Lestat did a shitty job making him. <laughs> like really. So he's, he's really considered to be one of the weakest vampires.
0: I don't, what do you mean, did a shitty job making him? Like, you're, like, raising
1: him? or like? Well, you're supposed to like feed them enough of your blood and stuff like that. And for whatever reason, it's never really fully explained. Lestat, or uh, Louis, is just one of the weakest vampires in existence. And later on, they kind of remedy that. And he just, you know, he joins the team, per se, but... You know, he stops whining, as the stat <laughs> likes to say. Oh my god, you said that perfectly.
0: <laughs> whining. Whining. But we- <laughs> oh, I had to listen to that for centuries. <laughs> Jesus, I do have to read these books. We cannot talk about the acting in this movie and leave out Kirsten Dunst. Holy
1: shit. For real. I mean, yeah, I just, she, <laughs> she channels adulthood so well you know after that 30 years it's just like completely different character and it's just i haven't really seen a child actor do that no. before really i know and it was it was um it was just done really really well and i i guess she's talked about it and she said like her mom i guess would work with her every single night uh or morning or whatever in their hotel Saying the lines just in the right way that an adult would say it, and know the meaning behind it and the layers and the subtext, because kids say exactly what they think, right? Versus adults say say something and there's layers of meaning behind it and everything, and and she's having that like heartfelt scene, not just her rampage moment where she's cutting her hair and is growing back, and she's like having that moment of realizing she will never grow up at all and finding out the true nature of her vampirism. But that that heart to heart scene on the balcony where she is making Louis make herself another companion. Yeah, you know, and how she convinces him. And that that last real moment they have together. It's such an adult scene. You know, and uh, it's very brave of the writers and, of course, Anne Rice in the original text, but to carry forward some of the things, it's like, you are my father and my mother and my lover, you know, And, and it's kind of that's in the fucking movie. And you have this child saying it and she's saying it in such a mature way that it just kind of blows me away in different ways every time I see this movie is her performance
0: i remember being completely floored by her performance as as a teenager when i was watching this movie and i was just like this this is what acting is you know and from from such a young person i was just flabbergasted that she could like convey that kind of emotion and that kind of like emotional adult depth to a performance And I mean, I have always been a huge fan of the Academy Awards from a much younger age than 15. And I like to try to pick out performances throughout the year that I think are going to be nominated or that should be nominated or should be celebrated. And I remember watching this movie for the first time in the theater and going, that is an Academy Award winning performance. And yet, when the Academy Awards came out, you know, she was nowhere in the list, which I think is one of the
1: big travesties of the Academy to date. I, Yeah, I don't understand what happened there because I, they just dropped the ball. Like, how could Anna Paquin, you know, get nominated for the piano or whatever and Kirsten Dunst not get nominated for and, this? And not know? to
0: say that Anna Paquin's performance wasn't, wasn't no, good. She was great no, in that she was movie, great. you know, but – a lot of times I chalk up child performances to a director, right? I mean, if a child gives a really good performance, I usually think it's the director that's done it. I think we should give that director some sort of accolade because so I think if you're going to like pull that kind of performance out of a kid – it usually falls to the person behind the camera, right? In this particular situation, I don't think that's it. I don't think that Neil Jordan had to do a whole lot to get Kirsten Dunst to give this kind of performance. I think that she's just a gifted and talented, natural actor. And we've seen that throughout her career since Interview with the Vampire.
1: Yeah, I hadn't quite. I was starting to lose faith in her uh, with the Spider-Man movies and stuff. And there was some phone in there but everyone wants um, to make money i mean come on i watched melancholia and she was amazing in that movie i was like that's that's the performer that's the actress i remember and that's something that she'll be remembered for is her performance of that film too see and i still haven't seen that movie yet so i need to watch that yeah she's fantastic
0: in like the fargo series that came out a couple years ago right i've heard yeah Mm -hmm. she's i mean she's
1: just she's a a wonderful actress and she has her own series now too i forget what it is yeah, I don't. I don't think I know what it is then. But in this particular movie,
0: she's just amazing. I think. I really, it's kind of the highlight of the movie for me is watching that that performance from start to finish, because even her death is emotional. It's it's incredibly sad, right? Because she had she had come to terms with so much just. The minutes before she's dead, you know, and I, I don't know. It just it breaks my heart to watch it.
1: Yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes. Is one of my favorite scenes is watching that child die. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> one of my favorite scenes is how they did that and Louis's reaction. Yes, because that's that's the heavy lifting that he had to do in the movie. It's his whole reaction scene to that and how he reacts to that and the effects that they did a lot of the effects in this movie are still just amazing. Uh, They built that ash statue of their remains and they pulled them apart by strings and everything just the right moment. They could only do it like once and they got it perfectly and his reaction had to be perfect. And it was, and he goes from absolute horror and shock and, and sadness to you can just see it in his face, just absolute murderous rage without ever baring his teeth or anything. Uh, You get to see it in his eyes when he when he exits and you see the smug smiles on Santiago and the other vampires, you know, and you just know they're all just going to fucking die. (laughs) And uh, and he gets he gets his due. And that really sets off like the most action packed
0: part of this movie. I mean, for the most part, this is a period drama, right? And it plays itself out in such a way that a period dramas often do. You know, we go from like country to country and, you know, set design changes and costume changes with the time period. And we don't really get a lot of horrific elements. I wonder why in the world Oprah Winfrey had to run out of the theater, you know, 10 minutes in, because there's really nothing horrific
1: or action going on for the most part, right? There's atmosphere, and it just probably felt like a very, very real dark melancholic something and she probably just didn't want to get in that headspace you know, she probably just talked to Maya Angelou or something. It's you know, it's a hard movie to start watching right after that kind of conversation.
0: I know why the vampire bird sings or whatever. I don't, I don't know. But it's not until that one particular moment when he's really exacting his revenge on the Théâtre de Vampire where, you know, we really get to see a lot of like horrific
1: and action-y moments. It got real and they did such a good job with that. Like they bring that naked woman out on stage, you know, to kind of kill her publicly as if it was theater, you know, and, uh, and everything kind of just gets real, the audience. And and you see that in Louis's face and he's like, this is horrific. Mm -hmm. I think he says that or something like it, Um, you know, and so he is the audience there and we're in it's, they cut the music and we're just, we're just shown that scene and all of its realness and uh, kind of force fed it as like a, as a scene of like mock entertainment or something like this is what you paid for. Watch it, you know? And it's, um, it's hard to watch actually still it's kind of hard to watch that scene you know no pain well and it's a really good juxtaposition between the two different kinds of vampires
0: that we've gotten to know in this movie right so we have like louis and lestat and claudia as a sort of family and then we're introduced to these european style vampires right who all sort of live together
1: in this coven style environment right they're very particular though if you read the novels there's a whole history behind that and it's it makes so much sense when you find out what that is
0: but in the particulars of this movie,
1: right, they are, yeah.
0: they're, they're a little bit more hardcore. I mean, I think that they, they know they're vampires, they know what they have to do to survive, and they're, they're doing what they need to do, right? And if you're going to put, like, a good and evil, like, Namaker on things, like, these vampires are particularly evil, I would say, at least in the context of this film.
1: No, right? they are, and just because of their religion, right? Um, Previously to this in the novels, they uh, were part of the church of Satan, right? And so um, they all thought, they they wrestled the same way Louis did with their existence, but they went to the other side and they said, no, we are evil. We must be children of the devil. We can't reconcile our existence and what we have to do to survive with anything good. So we're just going to dig in. And so they created all these rules and everything else and they're angry and they hate themselves. And that's just, it's a cult. It's a death cult. Right. And so essentially by the time, you know, that was all kind of thrown down and um, you know, Armand was the leader of the the theater, what they turned into, it was still kind of in a transition. And um, (laughs) by the time, uh, Louis and Claudia roll in and they're basically just following the rules for an excuse to kill and to alleviate their boredom. So how does Armand fall into that then? Because he doesn't seem as evil as
0: the rest of these vampires, right? I mean, if we're going to talk about the the greater scope of the, the Chronicles, right, outside of just this movie, Armand doesn't seem to be
1: as... Armand was one of the worst and then he kind of let it go but he really let it go and so he was just kind of there to exist and to kind of have some some sort of meaning leading this group and trying to kind of grow them um you know and he was obviously not doing a great job and he was just apathetic and nihilistic and bored you know the same as the rest of them he just wasn't angry right and so just like in the movie, he's wanting a quickening, right? He's he's wanting to change his life. He's wanting a new perspective, you know? And so he's trying to get Louis to be his companion and to leave it all behind, to start a new life and and just use it as an excuse. And, uh, you know, he he lets the, the theater do what they want and uh, to get his way, to single Louis out, to get the other people away from him so that he has no other choice but to be with Armand. And that's why Louis ultimately, you know, doesn't stay with him is because he knows that Armand could have stopped it if he had really wanted to. I kind of want to see that movie, though. I
0: would love to see what happens if Claudia didn't die, you know, and she had Madeline on her own and Louis went with Armand. I would love to see what would happen after that, kind of. Just because I think that the sex between Armand and Louis (laughs) would be really fucking hot, you know, I don't know.
1: Well, um, it's funny because in the in the novel, Lestat actually shows up, unbeknownst. Uh, I don't know if it's in the, that novel, but it's in Lestat, uh, the vampire Lestat that he actually showed up. And he kind of knew what was going on, I think, after the or before or after the fact. And he confronts Armand. And Armand beats the ever-holy shit out of Lestat. <laughs> and uh, parts ways, I guess. Armand has his way. How do you feel about some of these side... Acting roles, so like
0: Antonio Banderas and Steven rea right? I mean, like they they don't have a whole lot to do in this movie, really, but
1: the time they're there, they really make it count. Yeah, I agree. I love Armand's uh scenes. I love his monologues and how he delivers his lines, right? And how he doesn't know evil or God, you know? Maybe this is all there is, as he burns himself on a candle, you know? Feeling. Yeah. And that pain. that's
0: that's a really like. Memorable scene, too. I know they use that a lot in like trailers and marketing when the movie first came out because Antonio Banderas was starting to gain some popularity around
1: 1994. So was Brad
0: Pitt, yeah. Yep. And so, I mean, and you know, Antonio Banderas sort of became an action star thanks to Robert Rodriguez, right? But I think people forget that he had a whole career before he even came to the United States.
1: Yeah, I think he's on some sort of record. For like he's made hundreds of movies.
0: Yes, and he is a, an incredible dramatic actor. He does a lot with like facial expressions and things like that. He's he's a fantastic actor, and I think he does a really good job in this movie. And the same goes for Stephen Rea. I mean, he's a he's a British actor. He's been in a lot of British films and not super popular as far as like American movies go. But I think that he plays a really good like side villain in this movie. Oh,
1: he has such a good smug smile. Yes, <laughs> God it's perfect perfect. but perfect, he has some perfect. juicy scenes right every scene he was in was juicy you know even though he didn't have much you know he you need an actor like that to really make the most of it you know you could see like Armand and him like this is a perfect movie uh, to say like there are no small parts yeah
0: it's true there yeah. are no small parts but I think we'd be remiss if we're talking about any of the vampire we've talked about casting and direction and atmosphere and set but my co-host Chris loves a horror score or a film score in general
1: yeah this, this score is so layered um, I could listen to it over and over and over every track is slightly different it um, uses so many instruments and a lot of period instruments and period kind of compositions um, that are really really unique and interesting I still think that the the first track uh, uh, Me, which is I think uh, Deliver Me is in Latin is um, based on maybe a test track from Martin so I think they sound similar and kind of some riffs. Well, I have done my homework and I listened to the two back to
0: back. It's been, you know, a couple of weeks, but I mean, I did see a lot of similarities between the two and I I kind of I really just want to hope that people look back to movies like Martin when they're making movies like a the vampire right we talk a lot about like callbacks and references in mm-hmm. horror whenever we talk about you know movies that we deep dive into and i don't think it's far-fetched that people like uh Elliot goldenthal or uh, neil jordan would look back to something like romero's martin as inspiration for a movie like this well
1: i'm sure that you know there was a lot of like tone like they to get an atmosphere like this they he must have had like examples of tone you know so he might have pulled out martin and he might have pulled out the hunger which you know i'm thinking some of the look or feeling is kind of a proof of concept hey that we can get away with this and still be kind of successful and watching the hunger recently which we'll be talking about on patreon uh, was interesting because I was thinking, wow, this must have been influenced by the novel interview with the vampire, uh, just from the way it is. And it's so interesting um, how how kind of close some of those themes are, especially like some of the LGBT stuff yep. um, and how matter of fact it is and, and some of that um, some of the themes in there. And then I'm thinking, okay, that was influenced by the book and then the movie, uh, the vampire might have been slightly influenced by the hunger. So it's just really interesting that art imitates art, imitates art, you know, all that stuff. So it's just, uh, it's really interesting to see kind of, um, the lines of where things might have been influenced from.
0: And I think that happens all the time.
1: I know. I mean, like, this is
0: not Neil Jordan's first horror movie, per se. He made In the Company of Wolves back in the 80s. And it's um, also a very period-esque and atmospheric horror movie, just about a different kind of monster, right? Yeah. And, I mean, I, th- I think that's just his style of filmmaking. Well, and then I- he
1: made The Crying Game. and You basically put them t- two together, and it's on Envy the vampire, so... <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, I, I like his work quite a bit. I mean, I think if I'm going to look back on his oeuvre, though, I think that I mean, I, mean, I think Interview with the Vampire is my favorite. The Crying Game is very celebrated for what it is, but it's just a different kind of movie.
1: I, I miss that actress, uh, though, the actor slash actress in um, The Crying Game. Jay Davidson. Jay Davidson man. also yeah. played Raw in Stargate. Yeah. And then they quit acting and just became a hairdresser that. for the rest of their life <laughs> okay
0: so. but whatever they needed to do got that best supporting actor nomination right so yeah. it's good enough
1: well i have some fun facts or some of them are fun <laughs> <laughs> okay lay them i love these so of course uh this movie was kirsten dunst uh first on on-screen kiss and it was with brad pitt mm. of course she said it was gross it was like kissing an older brother i just thought that was interesting or kissing a daddy Ew. Yeah, he's 18 years older than her. So. Is this her first movie? I don't know. Okay. I know that she was in Little Women. Oh, yeah, you're right. Which might have been a little before or after. I don't know. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis was originally given the part of Lestat, but dropped out weeks before filming, and Tom Cruise eventually got the role after Johnny Depp turned down the role. <laughs> oh,
0: I don't know how I feel about either one of those.
1: Yeah, well, some of Anne Rice's... Uh, you know, contributions, like like an earlier version of this was supposed to be like Jean Vaught, you know, that was going to be made like in the late eighties or something. Mm, Yeah. So there was like a lot of different directors and actors attached to this. Right. Uh, Of course, we already talked about Christian Slater was given the role of uh, Malloy upon the death of river Phoenix, uh, who was originally supposed to be that character. And uh, Christian Slater donated his $250,000 salary uh, to the, um, to Phoenix's uh, favorite charities. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: I like it. We didn't talk about him in this movie either because he's barely in it. But I mean, Christian Slater yeah, was in the nineties mainstay. Job. Yeah, he was. He was good in this movie, you know. And he he looks good too. I mean, I had a huge crush on Christian Slater in the nineties. So
1: yeah. And theoretically, Christina Ricci, uh, Dominique Swain, Julia Stiles, Aaron Moore, and Evan Rachel Wood auditioned for the role of Claudia. Julia Stiles, really? I would have thought she'd been too. No, she would have be been right there. So would
0: Christina Ricci. Yeah, I mean, and I could maybe see Christina Ricci doing this kind of role, right? But I, I, at this point, it's squarely Kirsten Dunst. I don't, I don't know that anybody else could have done what she did with it. So, as, as <laughs> much like, as I love
1: her, Claudia, is that a corpse near bed? Is that your overbite? <laughs> 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 oh Jesus! Wednesday. <laughs> yeah and i'm glad she was wednesday yes so you know what she can keep that um at one point in development the role of louis was rewritten to be female character like i said and not only Cher but angelica houston another adams family alum yeah. uh, were considered to play the role uh this was due to the anticipation that audiences would reject any lgbt themes
0: so instead of People of so people would reject the LGBT themes, but they would totally buy Tom Cruise and Angelica Houston in some sort of <laughs> relationship is how we're supposed to buy or share. I don't for know, that matter? maybe
1: Raul Julia was going to be Armand or something, <laughs> and so they all went off to do Adam's Family. Fuck, okay,
0: <laughs> no, I, I don't like that at all.
1: <laughs> Who's the actor that played Fester? Duckcraft. Christopher. christopher lloyd christopher (laughs) lloyd was gonna be louis (laughs) no 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 great scott drink that blood uh this is brad pitt's least favorite filmmaking experience of all of his movies due to the months and months of night shoots Uh, He often tried to buy or actually he actually tried to buy himself out, but he couldn't afford it as it would have cost him 40 million dollars to get out of his contract. Oh, my God. However, when the crew went to New Orleans, he fell in love with the city and has had a relationship with it ever since, uh, founding the Make It Right Foundation, which built over 150 sustainable and affordable houses in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. All of the actors playing vampires were required to hang upside down for uh, up to 30 minutes at a time During the makeup application, this would force all the blood in their bodies to rush to their heads, causing the blood vessels in their faces to bulge out. And the makeup artists would then trace over the swollen veins, creating the eerie translucent skinned vampire look. Unfortunately for the actors, they would have to repeat the process several times over as the blood would quickly drain from their heads. Um, This in part accounts for the lengthy makeup process. I think we could just go ahead and
0: add that to Brad Pitt's reasons for not liking this movie then. Yeah. Right? But, you know,
1: and, uh, and uh, Tom Cruise requested that tunnels be made under all the sets so that they could walk from set to set without being seen. So they could keep that makeup kind of a secret uh, and a surprise. And because it's really effective, I haven't really seen it. Uh, it's like sense. And there's also a lot of invisible effects. And in fact, they weren't even nominated. I don't think for uh, special effects or visual effects, um, and the Stan Winston knocked it out of the park, especially with uh, when Claudia sl- uh, slashes the throat of Lestat. It's a seamless effect from the actor Tom Cruise bleeding out to an animatronic that deflates and like becomes desiccated in one fluid shot. And it's done so seamless and invisibly that they didn't they didn't know it was an effect. <laughs> so they didn't get nominated because that was the demo reel they sent in.
0: Well, and we, we talked about that on our Patreon episode. We were trying to choose a, you know, favorite makeup artist, right? Stan yeah. Wilson, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's, that is a good effect. I love the makeup in this movie. I'm glad that you brought that up on that fun fact because I i had forgotten until you just said it about how, like, pale they look, but the veins are so visible on their faces. And, and it's just
1: astounding. I really loved the uh, transition from human to vampire. That was done very subtly, uh, where he just, the color drains from his face as he dies, and his eye, as he takes his first breath as a vampire, his eyes change color. Yep. You know, and I it, subtle effects like that are few and far between, but they, it was just so effective.
0: Well, and it's effective because when you have a, a good story and good effects, and they sort of like meld together to create cinema yeah right i know that that sounds trite or whatever but i mean it's one of those moments in movies where the effects and the story and the script and the cinematography and the direction just all sort of go together and
1: make a good scene yeah everything's geared towards you're not i'm making a great film score i'm making great effects or i'm making this no everything was geared toward telling the story and nothing was done an ounce more than it should have to get that across and the effects are a good example of that
0: Okay, well, here at the Film Flamers, we like to ask a series of questions about the movies that we cover, and Interview with the Vampire shall be no different. And we're going to start, as we always do,
1: with, is Interview with the Vampire a horror movie? I think so, and multiple types of horror movies, right? We've got gothic romance in there, which is always fun to see. It's few and far between, like the little Penny Dreadful in there. Yeah. Uh, we've got the gore, and we've got the monsters with the vampires, and uh, we've got you know, the darker themes. There's some dark comedy in there, even.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I, mean, I agree with all that.
1: I think that... Erotic thriller. <laughs> <laughs> in a way that only the
0: 90s could create, you know? Um, this movie, to me, is a very singular vampire movie. It, it, I think it stands alone. I think it creates some of its own rules, obviously, thanks to Anne Rice, and but still harkens back to other vampire movies that we've seen before, right? Um, I think it's just a, a really good movie. And it's definitely horror because we have things like rotting corpses and, you know, the like. Yeah. People getting cut in twain by a scythe. Right? Yeah, so. burning alive
1: and all sorts of things.
0: Even though it's grounded in drama, I think that this is something that we could definitely call
1: horror adjacent. Dancing with a desiccated plague corpse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> to some
1: to one of my favorite tracks of the score.
0: Were you scared while watching Interview
1: the Vampire? Uh, I might have been scared in parts when I was uh, first watching it as a a tween, if you will. Um, It doesn't scare me now. It still just intrigues the the fuck out of me. So I, I just... I was just thinking, I was like, I wonder if I have time tonight to watch it because we're talking about it so much. <laughs> I want to see it. I want to hear that score. I want to see it. You know, and I want to feel those feelings. I want to think about the things that it makes me think about. You know, it's an experience. I think it's currently on Hulu. So, um,
0: I wasn't scared when I watched this for the first time. And I, I wasn't scared on this most recent viewing, which is kind of different for me because I'm normally – terrified at a lot of horror movies i think what scares me the most in this is like the the human element right i think that i can see a lot of myself in this movie both as a gay man today and when i saw it back then as as a a kid i really identified with claudia a lot and um you know sort of still do so yeah i I, I find that sort of transition between like a teenager to adult very terrifying and it scares me to look back on it i don't know and finally and some might say most important who's the hottest guy in interview with the vampire
1: this has got to be the hardest (laughs) <laughs> goddamn horror movie to judge using that question
0: <laughs> finally we have one normally we're like grasping at straws to try to find a hot guy there in a is movie tom
1: cruise and brad pitt and Antonio banderas and kristen slater and there would have been R- river phoenix no you know it's damn there's so there's just uh an embarrassment of riches <laughs> <laughs> Um, I
0: am gonna squarely land on Christian Slater for this one. I think that he's just, I don't know. 90s Christian Slater is so pretty to me, you know? Things like, I remember him back in, like, Heathers, you know? And, like, Cuffs and things like that. I just had such a huge crush on him. And, I mean, I do love Brad Pitt. I think Brad Pitt is one of the most handsome men ever created, but in this particular movie, I'm going to give it
1: to Christian Slater. I'm going to vote Brad Pitt. I'm sorry, but he was... It shows two different versions of hot Brad Pitt, because he's human at the beginning and he looks so young. Yeah? Like, just... Uh, it was just like, I almost never seen him that, like, <laughs> innocent looking, and to see him so sad. And then he's just made into a vampire, and all <laughs> of a sudden he just looks, you know, ten years older and, and, and kind of hot in a different way, and you know, I don't know. I have a soft spot for the melancholic brooding guys, probably. So maybe that's it. But, of course, he's Brad Pitt, so I don't have to defend my choice.
0: <laughs> no, you certainly don't. And he he's really legendary. had a lot of soul behind the
1: eyes in this particular
0: performance. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Either way, I mean, we could have chose any guy in this movie, and we still wouldn't have been wrong. So.
1: Yeah, we could have like thrown a dart in any direction and hit a hot guy. So...
0: Well, listeners, tell us what you think about Interview with the Vampire in our discussion, and maybe tell us what you think the hottest guy in it is, right? You can do that on social media, at the Film Flamers,
1: on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call us on our hotline, which we would love for you to do. It is at 972-666-7733 and we will put your voicemail on our next shooting the flames so please call in if you love our podcast and i assume that you do head over to apple
0: Podcasts or itunes give us a five-star rating and leave us a little piece of a review we'll read those on the shooting the flames episode as well
1: yeah it's been a little bit guys so we're (laughs) we're gonna ask for your help again um (laughs) Yeah, so uh, go on over there and give us a review. Also, check out our Patreon, where, like I said, we're going to have a conversation about the hunger and, God, so many other things we're putting out there now. So go and check that out, and we're also going to be releasing these episodes, as usual, anywhere from four days to two weeks early, you know. Uh, I think in one case it was like three weeks early. So you get access to those episodes, and uh, you get access to all the bonus episodes for as little as $2. So check it out that's right and this is going to bring us to a close for all of our
0: november episodes but we still have a lot to look forward to in december we're going to be covering one of my favorite holiday horror movies and some would say the
1: original slasher black christmas and in honor of black christmas our christmas present to you is our top 10 slashers I have so many choices that I have to work through for this one. It's
0: going to take me a long time to narrow it down to 10. Yep,
1: yeah, but you know we put our heart and soul into it. So check that out when that comes out. And uh, we also might have another little Christmas present for you on Christmas Day itself. So uh, check out your fees right after you open your presents and open another one. <laughs> Well, guys, I think it's time
0: for us to go off into the vampiric night. I have to go and find some audio versions of these books. I'm going to start listening to them right now. I need to catch up on everything that Chris has already read. So until next month, guys. Sweet, sweet dreams.
1: Drink and live forever.
0: All the Whining. <laughs> whining. <laughs> Oh, way anyway. <laughs> He sounds like Lucille Ball when he does that shit
1: sometimes. He's just
0: like, "Oh, Vicky. Okay. Shit.
1: Fuck. For no creatures under God are as we are, none so like him as ourselves. God, how many times did he take to nail that? So hard to say. How many times did you take to memorize it? I have it in here in my notes. I didn't memorize it. Oh, shit. Bit. Okay, whatever. I'm glad right, it sounded I- naturalistic.